I know every week I give a, an explanation of the framework series that we're going through. Um, you guys have done a fantastic job in not getting uh, bogged down with the fact that we're now 47 lessons into this. Uh, sometimes people could roll their eyes and, and feel a little uh, bogged down by that, but you, you stayed with it, uh, you stuck with it, you have the stick with itness. I think that's the Greek word, right? And so I really appreciate that. If you would, take your Bibles and open with me to Genesis 3. Who doesn't have a Bible this morning? Needs one. I've got them right here. Who needs one? Okay. I've got, this is a real nice Ryrie, so if you want to take it home. Okay, don't put it on eBay. Anybody else right here? Excellent. Catch, man. Catch, catch. Good catch. You guys need to play football. All right. I want to start with a quote. This is a good quote. C.S. Lewis writes, Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed you might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Now that makes you feel like you can sin and get away with it a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, don't be honest. You guys like sin. Come on, otherwise you wouldn't do it. We all like sin. That's the problem, isn't it? The problem is, is we like sin too much and we love rationalizing and reasoning sin. That one's not so bad. Well, that's not is what such and such is doing. Now we're participating in gossip. Everybody see how that works? The amazing thing is, is the sin problem in new, is it? And what we're looking at right now, entering into the life of Jesus, trying to figure out exactly who he is in light of the Old Testament, is we find this grand projection that the claim is made that on the cross he has forgiven sin. The question we're trying to answer is, is he qualified to do so? Do I have a reason to trust him? Somebody came up and said they want to write you a check for $5 million. You can cash it right now and put it in your bank account. Can you trust that person? Are you looking at paying the $25 fee because that check bounced? You have overdrawn your account, something like that. You see what I'm saying? That's a big claim. Because forgiveness of sin is a lot more valuable than $5 million. Do we believe that? Do you believe that money is more important than whether or not you sin? Now notice what I'm not doing. I'm not asking you not to sin. And here's the reason why. Number one, should we sin? No. Do we sin? Yes. So let's be realists about it. There's a lot of things we're doing that we don't want to do. There's a lot of things we feel compelled to do. And what that is, is the flesh. But what we find is that Jesus makes a claim. He can forgive sin. And so I don't know about you, but I would like some evidence. I think it's important to have evidence. So in Genesis 3, here's what we find. Number one, we find how we got in the problem in the first place. Now, you're familiar with this. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it. I've got two places we're going to go that are just prepping us for what we're really going to deal with, so we won't spend long there. But in Genesis chapter 3, we're familiar, right? Eve's wandering around the garden. We're not really for sure where Adam is, but we find out later he's pretty close. He's just silent. 
And all of a sudden, Eve gets a visitor. And there's a conversation that happens about what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. What are the rules, right? Isn't it amazing that in Eden, there's only one rule? Don't eat that fruit. You can hang a tire swing from that tree. You can build a clubhouse in that tree. You can chop down that tree and have firewood. Just don't eat the fruit. One thing. One thing. It seems doable, doesn't it? Does it? Obviously not, right? But you know how you are. You know how I am. Wet paint. Right? Man, for some reason, I want to touch it just to see if it'll get on my hand. And it always does, doesn't it? And then you go, oh, good grief. Oh, right? <laughs> you just compounded the problem by making it worse. No different. No different. Now, I don't want to spend all the time on this section, but I do want to look at just one verse here. Chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Let me read it one more time. I want you to get it, okay? Pay, pay real close attention. Let's go slow. When the woman saw, if you got your pen, everybody got your pen? right? Number one, the tree was good for food. And that, number two, it was a delight to the eyes. And that, number three, the tree was desirable to make one wise, comma, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The introduction of sin. One of the foundational things that we realized when we looked at sin was the fact that sin is not something that God gives us. He is good. He is holy. He cannot sin. He does not create sin. In fact, what's unique about sin is that sin originates within the person. Now, it's no wonder, you don't have to turn there, but it's in your notes, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Let's look up on the screen and just read that together. Whoa. That's not it. Let me turn there. Let's turn there. It's good for us to know it anyway. Put your finger here, Genesis 3. Turn it over to James in the back, in the back, in the back, back, back. If you hit Hebrews, go one more. James chapter 1, 14 and 15. These are pivotal verses so that we better understand us. So that I better understand y'all and y'all better understand me. Okay? Notice what it says, chapter 1, verse 14. But each one, each person is tempted when he is carried away and enticed, how? By his own, what's the word, church? Lust. Lust doesn't just mean sexual in connotation. Lust is desire. It is something that wants to feed your body and thinking, thought, 
process, all of that. It is worldly. Each one, notice it says, is carried away, enticed by his own lust. Verse 15, then, watch the process. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished or brought to maturity, it brings forth death. I don't know about you, but something significant has just taken place because here's what we learn from this passage. All temptation, all of it, is supernatural. This is important for you to understand. No, it's not. It's just that I want to do this. Yeah, but why do you want to do that? Or why are you being led in that direction? Well, if you're led in that direction and you entertain that direction and it gives way to sin, what's the next step? What's it say? Death. That sounds like a supernatural implication to me. Because this is the whole reason why Satan is getting this conversation going in Genesis chapter 3 is in order to separate her from her maker. What was the command that was given? Be fruitful, multiply, and have what? Dominion. Will you sleep, church? Do I need to have Jim come through with the coffee cart? Stewardess everybody here? Pass this down, pass this down. Okay, just making sure. So notice this, the whole mandate at the beginning before sin ever entered the picture was have dominion. It's a kingdom-minded focus. Having dominion means to dominate, to rule in a position. Adam and Eve, you are to rule as those who are under the creator God, all that has been made. Excellent. But because of what is getting ready to happen here, that's getting ready to get forfeited the crown gets ready to leave. In fact, if you remember when we studied this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, and they realized that they were naked. Completely different word now that sin has taken place than what it was when both were in the garden and were naked and were not ashamed in chapter 2, verse 25. Completely different word. Something happened. Something took place. They got robbed somehow. Something changed. Sad thing is, it's their fault. So back in Genesis 3, let's look at each one of these. When the woman saw that one, the tree was good for food. In other words, it was commanded to her, you can't eat of the tree. In fact, it's good for food. Let me ask you a question. Were there other trees in the garden that were good for food? Man, there were. And they probably had purple fruit and blue fruit, maybe some orange fruit, but for some reason this one had some red fruit. And I don't have red yet. Anybody relating this to a woman in her shoe collection? All the guys were like, amen, preach it, brother. Okay, somebody said something in the flesh. What was it? Be careful. Hey. Can't say amen, you got to say ouch, right? Sin's hurt. But think about it. Doesn't God say, every tree in the garden I've given you for food, all of them. You can eat from any of it. There's a variety going on here. But there's something about this one that I can't have. You sometimes wonder if the tree said wet paint. 
because they had to take a hold of it. Notice what she's rationalizing. It's good for food. It will sustain me. It will feed me. It will nourish me is the idea. Notice that she wants to do that. She has this desire, this temptation to do what she's been commanded by God not to do. How about the next one, number two? It was a delight to the eyes. That word delight there, it's the word for lust. It's the word for desire. Everybody remember what we just read in James? There's something about lust drawing us into it, this temptation. It's a desire. I want it. And I don't care who I have to run over to get, and I don't care who I have to tell no to get it. I want it. It's a desire. It's lusting, lusting after that which is not ours, which is interesting. That's the word that we know. Anybody know? That's what it is to covet something. To want something that's not yours. It's to lust after it. How about the third one here? And that the tree was desirable. Desirable. That almost seems like it's a a redundancy kind of to me. Desirable to make one wise. The idea is, is that you take pleasure in it, but you're also looking for praise and approval because you've taken pleasure in it. So notice, it is the desire to make one wise. Now here's the interesting thing. Everybody see where the comma is? Sin has not occurred yet. Does everybody notice that? This is what's important to realize. Temptation is not sin. That's important. Temptation is supernatural because it's trying to get you drawn away from God. But it doesn't give birth into sin until you entertain the temptation. That's the idea. So the fact that you are tempted is not wrong. Everybody with me? How many of you, this isn't new news? Okay, just want to make sure. But it's probably news we need to know, right? So good. We've got some familiarity with this ground. She hasn't sinned yet, but what do we see? Watch it. She took from its fruit. She still hasn't sinned yet, right? She could have picked it off the tree and chucked it in the other direction. But notice, and she ate. There it is. There's the moment that sin enters the picture. The struggles that you've had this morning just trying to make it to church, ta-da. The struggles you've had throughout the week when you've lost all coherence in some situations, let's say it that way. You went to the fair and for some reason the duck you turned over didn't say winner. You were enraged, right? Because you want that ladybug. You don't care what you got to do to get it. Even the smallest things drive us crazy sometimes. And it's easy to see. Sin just wants to take us somewhere. We have to be mentally on our guard. It's just part of us. It's just ingrained in us. This is the moment that sin enters the picture. Or notice this. This is the point in history when it all changed from theology to meology. It stopped being about thinking about God. It started to be about thinking about me. It started to be all about what I want, how selfish I am, how I feel personally offended by things, how if I don't get my way, then they're obviously wrong and I'm always right, and thinking the worst about everyone else, and then turning around and thinking the worst about ourselves, some things that just aren't true. Sin doesn't care what avenue it gets to you. It just wants you. And it wants to drag you away 
from everything that the Father has intended for you. Now, what's interesting about these three divisions here is that this isn't new stuff. In fact, this is prototype stuff. This actually sets a mold for us. So if you would take your Bibles, turn all the way to the right. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Back up just a little bit to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. John's epistle is not about how can you have a relationship with God. A relationship is possible only by believing in Jesus Christ. That's what establishes your relationship with the Father. However, this is about how to have an intimate relationship with the Father. How do you cultivate a friendship? How do you cultivate fellowship with Him? That's what John is writing about. And he wants us, believers, to know how to have fellowship with our Creator. So watch what he says, chapter 2 of 1 John, chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 15. Do not. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a double underline for me. Do not love the what? World. And what's interesting about this, this is the first mention of the word world in this epistle. So this first mention of it, he's got something specific to say. In fact, what's interesting about this, this is a negative, but it is also a present imperative. Now you say, what in the world does that mean? It is a commanding an action that's supposed to have an ongoing process. So since it's in the negative, maybe a, a translation would be, stop loving the world. That might be a way to look at it. Now why is that important to know? Because John is aware of the humanity of his readers. Does that make sense? John knows that we all have a tendency to want to love the world, and know what it says, or the things of the world. If you want to write this highly technical word above things, put it in quotation marks, S-T-U-F-F. Stuff. I don't love the world, but I love the world's stuff. Loving stuff. That's such a general category, isn't it? But when I say, do you love the world stuff, man, it pops right in your mind exactly what that is, doesn't it? Yeah, I kind of do love that. Notice what he says. Do not love the world. Stop loving the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh Uh-oh, they're not saved. Is that what that means? No, because that's not the purpose of why this was written. But notice what John is lining out here. If you find yourself loving the world and the stuff of the world, one thing you can be sure of is that your allegiance has been divided in such a way as to where it is not totally going towards the Father. Or think about what Jesus said. You cannot serve God in what? Money. Mammon. If you are serving money, here's what you can be guaranteed of, you're not serving God. It's the same idea here. If you love the world and the things of the world, here's one thing you can definitely be sure of, you do not have a love relationship going on with God. Still saved? Yes. Loving God? No. Does that sound strange to you? Does that sound strange, being in a relationship with God, but yet not having a love relationship with Him? Notice it's not talking about his love relationship with you and I. 
It's talking about our love relationship with him. Now, how in the world do you make sense of that? John 14, 21. He who loves me does what? Does anybody know? Keeps my commandments. How do we demonstrate our love for the Father? By obeying him. If you love the world, here's one thing you know for sure. You're not obeying the Father. They are mutually exclusive. Satan is over one system, and God is God, period. Notice the next one that it says. Here's what I want you to notice. For, here's the explanation, all that is in the world. Now, all means what? All. Praise God. You guys are leaps and bounds beyond some I've talked with. That's great. Not here. Other places. I have to be careful what I say after last Monday night class, for those of you who are in there. I almost had to go into exile to a private island somewhere. Good grief. Y'all are smart. So, for all that is in the world. Now, notice he lists it. Number one, what's it say? The lust of the flesh. And number two, the lust of the eyes. And number three, the boastful pride of life. One, two, three. Three, Does this, do these categories sound a little familiar to what we just saw in Genesis 3.6? Isn't this what Moses told us about Eve's inner thought process? The exact same thing. Notice, any sin that you deal with is going to fall into one of these three categories. These are the three areas of our problem, and they are all encompassing, and they are all under one massive category that is the world. All that is in the world falls in these three. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Notice what it says. All that is of the world, notice, it is not from the Father, but is from the world. Everybody see how they're mutually exclusive? Everybody see that? Now notice what he says after this, verse 17. The world is what? Passing away. It's going to cease to exist. The world is dying. So to be participating or have my hopes Set in any of these three categories to think that somehow there's satisfaction there is going to be fleeting in the end because the end has already been told to us. Does everybody see that? Logically, it makes no sense. The world is passing away. And also, it's what? Man, that word keeps coming up. You would almost think that God, who inspired all Scripture, knows us. And He knows what we deal with. And maybe it's not on a grand scale for you. Maybe it's just that Snickers bar. It's something. It's something that grabs us and wants to drag us away into a direction that is opposite the Savior. Now see, I can't speak to I can't speak to specifics because I don't know your specifics. But you do. And I've prayed a lot this week that the Holy Spirit would minister it to your heart about what those specific sins are. Notice it says here, the world is passing away and also it's lust. Those things that are fleeting, it's, the desire, it's that desire for the forbidden that you should not have. But, and this is a little tricky, the one who does the will of God lives forever. Everybody see that word live? Not, not the best translation. In fact, I was surprised because the version of the New American Standard from 1977, I felt like had it translated right. That word lives is not the best translation. This word is meno, M-E-N-O, if you wanted to write that down. And if you're familiar with John's gospel at all, John 15, abiding and remaining. That's what this word means, abiding. So if you think about it in that 
that context, and you can look, other translations have actually translated this abiding, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. If you're familiar with the abide usage in John's gospel by Jesus and how he brings that into the epistle of 1 John, you find out that abiding or remaining in him always has to do with what it is to be enhancing this fellowship relationship with the Father. It's what it is to be obedient in this aspect. It's what it is to be demonstrating a love, affection for him. Are we good? Everybody with me so far? Okay, that was my intro. Now let's go to the main text. <laughs> Matthew 4. You needed to know all of that because of where we're going right now. Matthew 4. Because the question we're wanting to ask is, the claim to forgive all sin is a massive claim. So if that is the case, we have got to have undeniable proof that Jesus is who he said he is. This is very, very important. Matthew 4. Jesus has just approached John the Baptist and asked him for baptism. Reluctantly, but after Jesus explained to him, he baptizes Jesus. And the Father actually makes a pronouncement that is audible at that time. And if you would, look at 317 real quick. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, God the Father speaking, does this have enough authority for you to convince you of his perspective of who Jesus is? He is my beloved son, and everything that he does is well-pleasing to the Father. Now, don't miss this little nugget we're going to throw out to the side here. That means that if we want to know what it is to live an effective Christian life, we study the life of Jesus. The death of Jesus is in order to bring lost people into life. But if we want to know what it is to live the new life, to walk by faith, to walk by the Spirit, to experience that fellowship intimacy with the Father, we study Jesus' life because no one walked the Christian life as well as the Lord Jesus Christ did. Now watch what happens here. Chapter 4, verse 1. We see that 4-1, we have a mental break that we suffer for some reason in between, especially if you've got a heading, the temptation of Jesus, right? You've got something like that? Get yourself a stick of white out and white that thing out so you just keep going, okay? Then, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, does that seem weird? The Spirit is leading Jesus to a secluded place for temptation? Does God tempt people? No. In fact, probably a better way to look at this word would be tested. Does God test people? Every day. Every day He tests us. And the test is always, it's real simple. We can go ahead and look in the back of the book and cheat, right? The test is, will you believe me or will you move forward in unbelief? That's always the test. Always the test is that, and the test is no different in this scenario. Probably the reason why it is tempted here is the idea is if you look down at verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, probably the idea is, is we want to know who is instigating the temptation. It's a testing from God's perspective, but Satan opens this up and uses it for an opportunity to try to get in there and get something done. 
So let's back up. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Verse 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Anybody done that recently? Probably not, right? Yeah, we're like, you know, we're, we're, we're pronouncing death and praying against Weight Watchers right now. We're definitely not fasting for 40 days and 40 nights for that thing, right? Barbecue is too good. So he says, he then became hungry. And all God's people said, yeah, right? 40 days and 40 nights? Some of us are wondering if he was on a vitamin supplement regimen or something like that. No, he's not. Well, he's the son of God. Yes, but he is also 100% human, is he not? Notice. Notice that it's pointing out the physical and I don't want to say deficiency, that's not what we're looking at, but let's be honest. This guy's hungry. Our Lord is starving, is the idea. How well would you do? Notice this. Yeah, no. How well would you do? The answer is no. Thank you, Sue, for your honesty. And that will be repeated on the internet for time. Exactly. Sue Hall. What's your address? Just kidding. Just kidding. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, everybody stop. What's 317 say? This is who? My beloved son. Who pronounced that? Think about it. Even though God pronounced this to be true audibly so everyone could hear, is it true? Are you really? Now here's a question. Does Satan know? If we think about it for a second, and I'm not trying to sound blasphemous, but really think about it. Does Satan not know some things about Jesus Christ that we don't have a clue and won't know until we pass into glory? There are some things that he just gets. Why do you think he doesn't want us to read our Bibles? Because we would end up knowing a whole lot about him and change our lives. Oh my gosh, if this is really true, I need to do something different. Everybody see how Satan's so subtle? If, questioning the authority, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. That's harmless enough, right? I mean, even if you're at a good restaurant, they bring through a basket of garlic bread before they give you something. Here, just in case we got to prepare you food for about 30 minutes, have this. Seems harmless, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus got to eat just like us, right? How about this? Verse 4. But he answered and said, everybody hold the phone. Eyes up here. This is the most important thing, the most practical thing I will ever, ever teach you in my entire ministry here. Ever. Right here. Chapter 4, verse 4. And here's the reason why. Jesus is getting ready to teach you and I by the life that he lives, the example he is going to unfold, how to fight. This is important. He is going to teach you how to pick up an offensive weapon and start hacking off legs and arms and heads. Sound graphic? He is going to teach you how to destroy Satan's attempts to drag you away from him. This is so important. This is so important to get. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 4. He answered and said, underline it, church, it is 
written. Notice his source material. It is written. Notice he doesn't say, well, you know, Oprah said on Tuesday. No, well, Whoopi had this opinion about it. No? Well, you know, I picked up the newspaper and they said, Dear Abby, well, I read my horoscope last week and all the philosophies of this world, which are evil, it is part of all that is in the world, Jesus doesn't even entertain. Satan, you want to try to get me to do this? Let me take you directly to the source. Now here's why this is important. For you and I to take up this same sword and wield it faithfully. You and I do not have the capacity or the discipline or the power to fight sin. We can't. You are helpless. I am helpless with sin. How do I know that? Because Jesus had to die in order to relieve me fully from the penalty of sin, which is death. We are all going to die in this room because of sin. Doesn't matter your age. Doesn't matter how well you take care of yourself. It's going to happen. Either that or the Lord returns and raptures us. Comfort one another with these words. Why? Because death is not good. It is a consequence of doing what I want rather than what God has commanded me to do. Somehow my way got better. It spoke a higher authority than what he has to say. So death is the problem in here. Sin is the problem. There is no worldly philosophy, thinking, or anything that you can bring to the table in order to make sense of it. It is written. The first thing that Jesus does is reaches for Scripture. Does everybody get this? I know I'm making a big deal out of what seems very simple. It is written, and look what he says. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Stop. Does your stomach believe that? I don't want to know if you believe that or you believe that in your heart. I want to know where your stomach's at. So you're looking at your wife right now because you had a skimpy breakfast. Some of you are tapping hard on the shoulder. Hey, man, are those donuts back there? Okay, save me one when I get out of here. Some of you wonder how long I'm going to preach just because you're hungry. Don't preach. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Wow. Wow. The Lord bless you and keep you too, right? Think about it. Our stomachs control a lot. But notice, Jesus says, hold on. Let me tell you what God has to say about this. You and I, anyone who is created, now notice, Jesus doesn't lie, does he? So everything he's telling you and I is true, whether we believe it or not. That's important to understand. Watch this. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
And what's interesting is this word here is not logos, like we saw in John 1. It is the Greek word rhema. It actually means audibly spoken is the idea. The audible word of God is the difference here. What in the world is Jesus saying? Turn these stones into bread. Feed yourself. It's been 40 days. It's been 40 nights. You are very hungry. So therefore, if you are God's son, use your authority and your ability and your power. Notice that Satan doesn't think it's anything different for Jesus to be God. Notice that use what God can use to do these things and do these things. Or let's look at it from another perspective. Remove yourself out from under the authority of the Father and satisfy yourself. Your flesh is lusting for it. Is this not the first category of sin? The lust of the flesh? It's what your body desperately wants. Why not give it to it? Why not take means into your own hands and do what you've got to do in order to take for yourself? Here's the reason why, Satan. is because that's not my sustenance. That's not why I live. That's not who controls whether I breathe or not. My stomach is not my God. Everybody get that? My stomach is not my God. God is my God. God determines whether I live or breathe. If God wants to bring me bread, he will. And if he doesn't want me to have it, he won't. Do we really believe that? Because here's what you do. Is when you think about where your stomach is, and you think about what Jesus is telling you, you start to realize the distance between belief and unbelief. Does everybody see that? That's a difference maker right there. How much do I truly trust that God will provide for me, that he is my sustainer, that what he says is what holds me up? That type of stuff will put Hershey's out of business. Does everybody see that? Do we really believe that about God's word? Because here's one thing we definitely know, Jesus did. And Jesus had no problem taking that and putting it out there. In fact, does everybody see where this is quoted from? Does anybody see the verse reference? Where's it quoted from? Deuteronomy, of all places. How dare he go into the Old Testament in a book that I never read and pull something out in order to fight Satan? Good grief. In fact, here's one thing. Spoiler, people. The other two responses he gives, those are from Deuteronomy as well. Jesus loved the book of Deuteronomy. So notice he uses that there too. Look what he says. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That is not his source. Notice, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Get this. If temptation is a supernatural struggle, you have to draw from a supernatural source in order to have a supernatural strength to withstand it. Does everybody get this? It's important for you to know. It's in your notes. You don't have to write it down, but it's important. I thought a lot about it. Give me some kudos for crafting that, okay? In order to fight a supernatural temptation like this, you have got to draw from something greater than yourself. Why is that? Because we do not have the capacity to handle it. 
We have no problem flipping through the pages of Scripture and finding sinner, 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 sinner. And if the Bible continued on past Revelation, you can guarantee that all of our names would be in there as sinners who failed in some way before God. Why? Because a lot of times we try to take up these processes of our own flesh. But I didn't commit that sin. Is that what keeps you sinless? Just because you didn't do it? If you're Catholic, maybe. Oh, that hurt. But I didn't do that. You're free. You're clear. What does Jesus say? If you even look on a woman with lust, save your cab fare. You've already committed adultery in your heart. If you hate your brother, you have killed him. You don't need a knife. You just need self to slay another person. Everybody see that? Jesus is getting beyond what I do here or there. Jesus wants us to look at this. Do I really believe that what God has spoken sustains me in this situation? Do I really truly trust in that? Am I willing to lean into that as being factual? I didn't commit the sin. Well, you didn't commit that sin but you still sinned. Why? Because I had a better way to get out of it. Well, I devised a better plan. Well, I thought of a better answer. Well, I was able to talk my way out without really technically lying about it because I'm really sly and sneaky and I've developed it for a long time because I'm a big sinner. That's us. That's us. That's us. Finding the loophole so that somehow we can be convinced that we're not guilty. Get this, if what Jesus said here is true, any answer that we give apart from God's word being the foundation is a sin. It may not be this direct sin you were being tempted with, but you gave an answer other than it is written. Which means I have written, or I've heard it said, or Gandhi had a good quote, or Oprah gave me this. Whatever. How'd that woman get so powerful? Because she gave a lot of free stuff away. She had a lot of good advice. Well, my guests are just the best. I don't know. But somehow people draw her. And I've heard it being said before, just walking through a store or something. Oh, well, on Oprah the other day, she said this. And people base their decisions. Oprah also has hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a lot easier to make other people's decisions when you've got that kind of money. You tell anybody what they want to hear. But when the temptation comes, are we, as Christians, who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who have been set apart as saints of God and fully adopted into His family and have a position of spotless righteousness in the eyes of the Father because He sees us through the glasses of the perfect death and resurrection of His Son, are we allowing our first words to be in a temptation? It is written. God has a better answer to say than doing this. Notice Jesus' second move. Or sorry, Satan's second move. Number two, notice the first one is the lust of the flesh. Number two, the devil took him into the holy city. Where's that? 
Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now the pinnacle of the temple was about 300 to 350 feet high. So they're standing up here and they're looking out over what is the Kidron Valley. I believe it's the southwest side. And looking on there and he said, if you are the son of God, notice the same approach. Throw yourself down. Jump. For it is written. Uh Uh-oh. Can Satan use scripture? Yes, he can. He can use it like a billy club. He'll beat you with it. He'll do like this to get you into sin. And then once you've committed it, he'll do this. And he will twist scripture to get it to happen. Now here's the amazing thing. A lot of people have thought that his quotation of scripture here is the deception because he leaves a little portion out. It's not. It is not uncommon throughout the New Testament for writers to be quoting from the Old Testament and omit a certain little portion there. That's not out of the ordinary for how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. But watch what happens. It is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus, throw yourself off here because God has said in the Old Testament that the angels will keep you from hitting the ground. Now, you're 350 feet up, and yes, perfectly God, but also perfectly man. And you jump. What happens if you hit? Dead. Splat. Are the angels going to come in and rescue that? What does the word say? Satan quoted it. See, it's odd, isn't it? How does Jesus answer it? Watch what happens. Jesus said, uh, sorry, yeah, Jesus said to him on the hand, what's he say? It is written, quoted from Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's what Satan is saying, Jesus. In the Old Testament, it seems pretty clear that if you were to do something to put your body in jeopardy, God's not going to let anything happen to you. And so if that's the case, let's see if he's telling the truth. In other words... Jesus putting himself in peril, in mortal danger, in order to force God's hand to prove what has already been said. Let me ask you a question. Does God owe us an explanation about anything? No. Is he required to prove his word to anyone? No. The one thing I love about skeptics of God's word is they can never tell me where it's wrong. They want to tell me that it's wrong, but they can't tell me where it's wrong. God is not obligated to prove anything. And so what is Jesus' response? We're not to test God. We're not to put our lives in some sort of mortal danger in order to ask the question, will God show up? In other words, taking your life for yourself is sin. This is the boastful pride of life. This is that category of sin. It is saying, God, let's see what you'll do here. I dare you. Anybody want to take those steps with God? Notice that Jesus doesn't either. He says here, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Now, obviously higher than 350 feet. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Not just what they look like, but also what they reigned over, the power that constituted them and all of the accolades that they received because of their 
dominion. Anytime that you bring in the idea of a kingdom, you are talking about domination and rulership. So think of this. Satan takes him up and he's able to see all of them all across the world. Watch. And he said to him, all these things I will give you. Stop there. Is this a bona fide offer? Why? Why would you say such a thing? Because I'll tell you this, I don't agree with you. Oh, nobody wants to talk now. (laughs) Why is this not a bona fide offer? Because we're what? They're not his to give? Well, yeah, that, 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 I love it. It sounds like somebody threw a speaking spell down the stairs. That's great. Bleep, that, bleep, bleep, bleep. Satan is the god of this world, the prince of this present age. See, here's the interesting thing. When Adam and Eve sinned, they forfeited the right to have dominion. When they forfeited it, Satan took up the mantle. And this is why all the world powers spiritually speaking, are controlled by little g-gods, also known as demons. This is why what we're dealing with is not just what ended up on the front page of the news or whether or not CNN is broadcasting fake news. All of this thing is demonically motivated and originated. Oh, I'm not comfortable with that. That's fine. It takes a while to grab a hold of, but it's reality. Satan is over this world system. He has orchestrated it perfectly, and all people care about is money and power. Don't be deceived. Do not, if this sounds familiar, do not love the world or the things of the world. Doesn't matter if it's got an elephant or donkey next to it. Doesn't matter if you're for the Second Amendment or against it. Demonic forces are behind all of it. Let me give you these references real quick. They're in your notes, but let me give them to you. John 12, 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 2, 2, 1 John 5, 19. All of them speak of Satan having the dominance, the reign, the rule at this present time, though it's temporary, over this earth. So if he is running this show down here and leading people astray by making them care about things other than what God has put forward in his word that we should be most concerned about, be guaranteed he has every right at this moment to say, Jesus, I will give you the kingdoms of the world if... What's the condition? Look what it says. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, all of these I will give you if... You fall down and worship me. There's the exchange. Sin's always got an exchange, doesn't it? But if you just give up a little bit of this, you'll get a whole lot of this. Notice that the idea here is, number one, are all the kingdoms going to be Jesus's? Are they going to be his in the end? I mean, when we read through Daniel chapter 2, we talk about the statue, and we talk about the huge rock that was made, that was not cut with hands, that comes in and smashes the feet of this statue and puts them into dust, and it is established and it will never pass away. It is an everlasting kingdom. When we talk about that prophecy, we're talking about the kingdom of Christ. When he returns in Revelation 19, he rips through the sky and destroys everyone who is opposed to him. He then sets up his kingdom and he rules the world, physically, 
literally, politically, at that moment. So they're all going to be his. However, Satan's offering them now. Let me ask you a question. You ever thought about what would happen if Jesus took this offer? Right? Come on, Merv, let's make a deal, right? Door number two, give me the kingdoms now and I'll just get down on this knee and say, hey, Satan. What's up? That was Monty? Who was Merv on then? Yeah, Merv owned it all probably. <laughs> That's probably why I saw his name on there. That was Monty. Okay. Well, I've been corrected today. That hurts. All right. But what would have happened if Jesus would have taken that deal? Let me ask you a question. If he bowed down to Satan, who's in charge? Uh-oh. He couldn't be our Savior because then he would have sinned and he couldn't have died for the sins of the world. What does that mean for you and me? Hey, let's say it in no uncertain terms. Damned. All of us. Without hope. All of us. So there's a lot riding on this decision. What if that was offered to you? All the kingdoms of the world and its glory. If you will simply bow a knee and worship the devil. We think, how come everybody's so silent? This is satanic stuff we're talking about today. Yes, it is. Because that's our enemy. Know your enemy and know how to fight him. And Jesus is teaching us. Notice, the extent of his temptation has no bounds. He will go as far as to try to offer all that he possesses control over in exchange for this one moment. And I love it because Jesus has no problem. Look what he says. Jesus said to him, go, Satan, or some of your translations say, be gone, Satan. It is what? Here's what God's word has to say about the situation. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him what? Only. And here's the reason why. is because the one that has your affection is the one that determines your direction. That is the reason why. You are to worship the Lord your God only, alone, period. No one else has precedence. No one else has control. No one else has directives or words to say that matter. Isn't this the essence of unbelief when somehow we think that something else has gained a greater authority or that we should pay more attention to rather than what God has said? Is that how Eve fell? Yes? No? Who's asleep? Okay, just one of you. Okay. Is that not what happened to Eve? It is what happened to Eve. All it took was a moment. Did God really say? Did he really say? You know, the one who created language, did he have mumble mouth at that moment? Was he not clear? Oh, yeah, we're not supposed to eat it or touch it. Did he ever say don't touch it? No, but Satan knew at that moment that he had gotten her off the path. How should have Eve responded? It is written. It is written. And noticed here, by showing Jesus all these kingdoms, took him up to a place where he could see it all. The lust of the eyes. Don't you want this? Some, sometimes some preachers call this the eye gate. This is where sin enters in at from what you see and that it originates and the heart wants to draw you away. Now here's the amazing thing. Where did Eve fall? Lust of the flesh? Lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Everything John told us, right? 
Where does Jesus succeed? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. In other words, let's say it this way. Every area where you and I fail, Jesus is victorious. And here's the amazing thing. Because of the type of relationship He has made available through His death and resurrection, if you are a believer in Christ, you are already victorious over these things just by identification with Him. That's everything that Romans chapter 6 is about. You have died to sin. You are alive in Christ. And so if that's the case, present your instruments as instruments of righteousness. In other words, you don't have to sin because Jesus has already overcome it and then died for it and removed it from your account. Does that make sense? Now notice, that's from a positional aspect in God's sight. You and I have no sin if we are in Christ. That's pretty cool. How come nobody says amen to that? Are we so Bible that we can't be a little Baptist? I mean, you guys all sit in the same place like Baptists. Come on. But think about it. In God's sight, I have no sin. All God's people said, what? No, said, what? You can say amen, but first let's get the reality of it. What? No sin. But he saw what I did this morning. Yeah, no sin. Why do you confess that? Yes, you do. But not to be accepted by him. You are already fully accepted in Christ. (laughs) Now you're doing it out of obligation. So here's some things I want to point out about how do we apply what we see Jesus doing in these three categories of sin. Number one, Jesus always uses what? Scripture. How do I fight temptation? There's only one answer to this. It's real simple. It's hard to remember in the moment. Gets tense, start to sweat, get a little flushed. You can feel the sweat coming out of your pores or something. Oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Start biting your your nails like a typewriter, right? Scripture. The answer is Scripture. God has something to say about this temptation, and I need to know what it is in order to address it effectively and squash it. Does that make sense? It's got to get dealt with. So I've got to use the word. Now hold on. If I have to use the word in order to fight temptation, that means I need to what? I need to know the word. We are commanded. We are commanded. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you. How? Richly. We know the verse. It is supposed to find its residence within you and I. Why? So when the temptation comes, we can immediately, it is written this, it is written this. And we deal with it according to God's truth. Any other method you try to use, it is insufficient and you will be drawn into sin and you will sin by not giving the right answer. Does that make sense? There is no other solution but Scripture. Here's the third thing I think a lot of people miss. Did everybody notice that Jesus didn't stop and pray? Does everybody notice that? Does that seem odd to you? Well, Jesus, if you're hungry, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Uh, Hold on. Father in heaven. Does he do that? 
Why not? Why does Jesus not pray? I mean, are we supposed to pray without ceasing and in all occasions pray and, right? Command men to lift up holy hands. That kind of thing? Is that right? Why doesn't Jesus pray? I mean, of all the people that are going, he's setting the model example of how you and I fight temptation so that it doesn't give way to sin, so that it doesn't ultimately lead to death, and so that we can remain in a fellowship context with the Father where that intimacy is not broken. Where is prayer? Where? Why doesn't he pray? Blah, 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 blah. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. What do you think, Jamie? Using scripture as prayer? Mm, that sounds spiritual. What do you think? What? He's already in communication with the Father? Hey, I have a, I have a hotline to the Lord. Now hold on a second because I'm getting ready to do something that could be extremely dangerous to my personal character. My mom and dad are here. (laughs) And my dad wants to answer the question. Should I let him? See, uh, (sighs) and when he does, you guys are going to know who he is. And then it's just all downhill for me, I can tell. Go ahead, Dad. He already knows God's will on the matter. Does Jesus need to pray? I mean, we see where he does pray, right? He goes up on the mountain to pray for the disciples who's going to be chosen to follow him and all those things. But in this temptation situation, do you need to pray about the temptation? You don't. If we spend time praying about the temptation, a lot of times it's because we're trying to rationalize how to still be okay getting away with the sin and moving on. Let's be honest. We're evil people. Let's not underestimate ourselves. That's why we need a Savior to begin with. But notice, when you address it like Jesus says to address it, the temptation comes, no. I use the same sword every time and deal with it. Get it done. Slay it. Choose God's word over sin. It doesn't get any more simple than that. Hard to implement. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you throughout this next week if you have the opportunity. Again, the whole reason why I I did 11 and a half pages of notes this week is so that you can go over it and reflect upon it throughout the week and meditate on this. One of the greatest problems that preachers have about the Sunday sermon, and I'm sure Pastor Steve can agree with this, is sometimes we feel like we've studied all week and we've poured a lot of time into this, and then we dispense it on Sunday, and it's almost like the wind came across and just blew it away out to the lake. And it's drowned never to be remembered anymore. No, that's our sin, not the sermon, right? So the idea is, is that if we would meditate on these truths, don't worry not so much about what I say, but get in the Word with this and let it renew your mind so that when temptation comes, the first thing you're grabbing for is not being quick to answer it according to how we think things ought to be. It is so that God's Word is handy and you are nimble in drawing it to address it. Does that make sense? If you have difficulty reading through these, you're like, man, this is forever. Listen to it on the, on the website, gbcportage.com. You can go there, click on sermons, and there it is. Does that answer your question? Go ahead. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whole attitude of prayer is never to leave us. That's important. The attitude of prayer is always to be constant. But in a temptation situation, that's not when you stop and pray. That's when you slay it. That's when you address it. That's when you fight as Jesus teaches us how to fight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you, God, that you give us very clearly through the model of your son, how do you deal with sin? And what it does is it further um, bolsters our confidence in the fact that he is able to deal with our sin. He is a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. He can meet us in our failures, Lord. Thank you for the word. Thank you for your holy word. Thank you for giving us everything that we would need as an arsenal to be able to address every temptation that faces us. Father, help us to be diligent in knowing it and diligent in addressing temptation when it comes our way. Maybe we're thinking through areas where we have failed in the past few hours or or the past week. Maybe we're thinking upon situations that were so devastating to our life that if we would have known the Scriptures at that time, we could have addressed it and things would have been much differently. Father, let those be teaching moments that humble us and that extol your word for being what sustains us. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the living God. So I pray, Lord, if we are not convinced of this, help our unbelief to trust you fully. We pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.